So I am, I am pleased this morning to continue this exploration of the shadow. It's actually been quite fun uh, to do. I hope it's been fun for you. Fun might not be a word some of you might use. <laughs> but it's actually uh, mysterious. Uh, by the shadow, I'm meaning that which doesn't fit one's self-image. That can be the self-image of a person, a family, a community, an organization, a group, or a whole society. The society can say, this is who we are, and these activities shouldn't be looked at because they're not who we are. Or these activities can't be looked at because they don't fit our self-image, and they're kept in the shadow area. Working with the concept of the shadow, I think, is quite powerful. Um, Carl Jung, who developed the concept of the shadow, he defined it as the negative side of the personality, the sum of all those unpleasant qualities we like to hide. So you can see it it quite simply can be understood in that which doesn't fit the conscious self-image. Another psychologist said the shadow refers to that part of the personality which has been repressed for the sense of our self, our ideal of who we are, our ideal of our self. The notion is that when we do that, we tend to repress parts of ourselves which tend to want to come back. And they will come back in unconscious ways if we continue to try to repress them. And they can be potentially very destructive. As we mentioned last time, a lot of the uh, phenomena on a more collective level that we can identify with uh, many of the wars of the 20th century can be very much linked with shadow phenomena. Certain things being repressed, could be one's aggression, could be certain uh, qualities which are seen uh, as negative and projected onto some certain people. Uh, could be Jews, African Americans, women, men, uh, and so forth. And so the shadow is both personal and collective, and there's an interpenetration of the two. I find the concept very helpful as a complement to Buddhist practice because, in a sense, it brings together three core areas of our practice in a way which is very helpful. In a sense, it is a kind, it's a concept that helps us unpack or become more clear on the nature of ignorance or delusion. The essence of Buddhist practice is to try to transform ignorance and bring wisdom and compassion. The concept of the shadow and practices which help illuminate the shadow, to me, are, can be very skillful in illuminating uh, places where there is ignorance or delusion, even if we call ourselves spiritual. It's very interesting, even in the history of Buddhism, we can find uh, movements where one group of Buddhists would say, you're ignorant about this. You know, if, if it's kind of like a, it can be a little humorous, you know, pe- you know, we have a tradition where the aim is to transform ignorance and you have to watch out for attachment and you have, you have these reform movements where, where they say, well, you're really, don't see this. You're ignorant about this and you're attached to that, by the way. <laughs> And so, uh, so we could take that from a positive point of view as internal dialogue about what the real meaning of ignorance and attachment are. So that's actually there in the history of Buddhism. Uh, you have this core intention, and then, you know, one, you know, like the Mahayana tradition comes along four or five centuries after the original teachings of the Buddha, and they say, well, you, you people practicing all by yourself and trying to reach enlightenment, you're actually self-centered at trying to get rid of the self by segregating your... <laughs> you know, you're, 
in a self-centered way trying to get rid of yourself and we should be helping others, you know, and, and they say, well, that's your shadow, you know, the shadow is your self-image of yourself, even a spiritual self-image that's trying to get rid of self-image can have self-image. <laughs> so, that, so, I think humor is appropriate. Um, one friend of mine calls it important in working with the shadow to keep your zenza humor. <laughs> That's spelled Z-E-N-S-A-H-U-M-A-H. <laughs> so, um, but it's a powerful area, and, and the concept of the shadow, I think, helps bridge these three areas of what we might call the spiritual, the psychological, and the social in a powerful way. It really helps us bring together areas which are often separated. It can we can see that there are parts of traditional Buddhist practice which, even though obviously the concept of shadow isn't used, are really getting at that. I talked about some of that last time. For example, in the story of the Buddha, his life history as being raised in a, we would say, somewhat pampered and privileged existence as a prince, and then being sheltered from a great deal of the negative or difficult existential realities, the realities of suffering, of sickness, old age, depth, death, and so forth. And then at the fairly advanced age of 29, through uh, going beyond the boundaries of the palace, going outside, as it were, of his usual box, we might say, going outside of his usual habits, the usual way his mind works and the way he was conditioned to work, he came in contact with shadow material and it changed his life. And he said, I have to make sense of these phenomena. I cannot live repressing these phenomena, which he was encouraged to do. And so we have that in Buddhist tradition. We have that sense. We have the continual invitation to look for where there is a fixated sense of self a fixated self-image and so forth, which we could link with shadow material. We also can see how we can open up to more psychological tendencies. So the shadow can relate to our spiritual practice, it can relate to the more psychological dimensions of seeing where we tend through conditioning, personal history, cultural history, and so forth, tend to be scared of certain territories in our own experience. And we can learn more skillfully to open up to those. And we all can also see how there's a strong social dimension related to the shadow. Most shadow phenomena, as we'll see, are a mix of the personal and the collective. You know, a great amount of what we've been encouraged to suppress doesn't just come from personal idiosyncrasy, it comes from organized cultural forces that tend to operate in certain ways. And so looking at the shadow is, I think, a, quite a wonderful way of connecting these three areas which are so often separated. Uh, and we can see how that, how that works. And I'll try to bring in uh, further examples. I think we could see the shadow <clears throat> quite simply as parts of our experience which for various reasons we can't openly be aware of. Hence, we tend to relegate them to the shadow. Examples given last time could be uh, quite simple. Uh, I grow up in a family, an example I gave last time, where I've been told not to be angry, or we could say not to be wild. My Family likes things to be somewhat ordered and still. My spontaneity is not welcome. As a three-year-old child, I get the message, if you're like this, you won't get love. It becomes part of my shadow. It's not acceptable. I internalize it. Or if I don't internalize it, I have a lot of trips to the child's psychiatrist. <laughs> um, and some children you know, as it were, don't internalize all that, but most, most of us have. And, we, and so we internalize the messages, not always consciously given by our parents, and often 
parents well-meaning, doing the best they can, obviously. But we might internalize that uh, I shouldn't be wild, I shouldn't be too spontaneous, and I certainly shouldn't be angry too much. Um, not everyone gets that conditioning, and different conditioning for different families, cultural groups, and so forth, but we all get some version of that. And that turns into a way that I learn uh, not to go certain places, not to open up to those experiences. So I become um, uh, a 24-year-old or a 25-year-old and I'm in a relationship and I, um, something happens and I feel like I'm getting angry. And what I've learned is that I can have love and good connections with people if I suppress my anger and act like I'm a nice person. This is just a hypothetical example. I don't know if anyone... <laughs> Does anyone remotely relate to that example? <laughs> so so that, that, uh, that, that's how the shadow forms. But I, I like to think of it very, very simply as that which we can't openly experience. And the, uh, so I think, the, as it were, the logic of the shadow or the way it works is quite simple, which means that the way that we can, can go back and uh, work with the shadow or transform it is also quite simple. It means finding ways to open to it in a, uh, with awareness and with compassion whether it's personal shadow or collective shadow. So I think the way to work with it, whether it's very complicated situation, I gave the example last time, South Africa, Truth and Reconciliation Commission, opening up to atrocities, you know, and horrible things happening, same tools, awareness and compassion. Truth and Reconciliation Commission set up place where people could talk openly, whether as perpetrators or victims, an imperfect process, but still very powerful for dealing with uh, immense collective shadow issues uh, and, and essentially setting up a conditions of relative safety and respect where people could speak about very rough things and um, really manifest that we could say as a kind of shadow work where one develops awareness presence, compassion, and wisdom to work with things. So eventually what we're going to want to do for all of the shadow phenomena is find skillful ways to cultivate awareness and compassion and wisdom. Interesting, that's exactly what we do in our meditation practice. And so it's completely continuous with that. That's what we're, that's essentially what we do. And we, in practicing, are developing tools that are extremely helpful for working with the shadow. So I mentioned the, um, collect, that there's both personal and collective shadow, and we can see that in a variety of ways. Uh, we can see that in the way that a society doesn't want to deal with certain things. And typically, large-scale collective suffering from the past is extremely hard for societies to deal with. It's real. It's very hard, and generally they don't. <laughs> it goes underground, and it drives behavior to a large extent, whether it's the history of slavery in this country, or uh, the Holocaust in Germany, or um, many other situations, what happens with Native Americans, it's not really dealt with. It's dealt with a little bit, or some. And, and you know, I, we have dealt with these uh, phenomena some in this country. But that tends to go underground. Another form is the way that we tend to find ourselves when we can't uh, face something, we tend to project onto others. <laughs> and I talked last time about the phenomenon of projection, which is very powerful phenomena. If I can't accept in myself my spontaneity or my wildness, I will likely see others who are wild or spontaneous. You know, I might, as an adult, see a child, let's say in a supermarket, I see a child in a supermarket who's acting wild and spontaneous, and I say, can't that mother control her child? I will tend to go there. 
because in some way I can't deal with that myself. And I will tend to project onto others that they are somehow bad for that reason. One example which I've uh, brought up in the past is a very powerful one which comes from a, a friend who I went through a training with um, who is a young woman in her, I think she'd be mid or late 20s now, uh, named Courtney Mazzola. And she is a woman who is blind from the age of one or two. And she has written uh, a very powerful um, self-reflection on how she, as a person with disabilities, has uh, received projections from others and tends to internalize it, making her own condition part of her own shadow. And I thought I'd read some of this because it, it illustrates this. And this is fairly intense <coughs> phenomena. And she says that um, she talks about uh, projection. And then she says that um, projection happens when certain people evoke strong responses. And she gives the example of herself as a blind person. People with disabilities, from their mere existence, can evoke powerful emotional responses in others. Any response, regardless of the level of intensity or awareness, can be understood as an unconscious reaction to the reminder of one's own perceived weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And we, may, we may feel this sometimes when we, we're with someone where, where there are physical disabilities or some kind of something which can evoke something in ourselves that we're uncomfortable. And in some sense she's saying that this is because in some way we can't openly face that experience in ourselves. And of course we can take this as an invitation. There's so, so I think it connects with the sense that our shadow territory is where we can't face something. This is an even greater issue for disabled people more than most other minority groups because it is possible for an able-bodied person to become disabled whereas there is no real realistic threat of becoming another race, gender, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and so forth. She says, often when confronted with one's own insecurities, instead of facing them and all the work that such an act would require, it is simply easier to inherently feel sorry for this person, essentially adopting a superior position and consequently diminishing their value as a human being in the process. She quotes someone who says, the ordinary response to atrocities is to banish them from awareness. A disabled person becomes someone people feel is less than inferior, helpless, defective, and otherwise does not share the full human experience. In the process, a person with a disability is turned into a species that one cannot really relate to and is quite different. This not only ensures that the projector is ill at ease around disabled people, but it renders the disabled person potentially subject to identifying with the projection, taking it in. The more aware a disabled person is of how they are perceived by those around them, the more susceptible they are to having their life dictated by the projections of others. When a person begins to identify with the projection, one of two circumstances occurs. One, the person starts to conform to the perception, or one acts out against taking on such a limited sense of self. So we have the shadow, we have projection. It occurs personally, it occurs in groups, it occurs, it occurs socially. And again, connected ultimately with an inability simply to be with an experience. And so again, we have, we're cultivating the tools that let us work with this. We're cultivating when we sit, when we sit with an uncomfortable feeling in the body, an uncomfortable emotion. And the uncomfortable feeling in the body and the uncomfortable emotions could be quite positive. I'm not just saying that the shadow has to do with the negative. And last time we talked about how this, there can be, in, in a sense, a positive shadow or a bright shadow. And I mentioned that to some extent we tend to project some of our beauty and our brilliance onto people we call stars. <coughs> Interesting. We project our brilliance onto the stars and they shine more brightly and we shine less brightly. We do that, we can do that onto teachers. We can do that onto figures we really respect. And we, um, we can do that, and in some way there's an inability either to be aware of or access certain parts of ourselves. So last time 
I talked about some ways to try to uh, access and work with the shadow. And we talked about particularly looking at areas where we might be uncomfortable. Again, it can be positive or negative. We might be uncomfortable with other people seeing how wonderful we are. That's part of the shadow. Or with um, when someone gives us a compliment and we say, do you know how we, we might not really want to accept it? That's shadow material. And so these small interactions in everyday life can be cues to looking for where the shadow is. Pretty interesting. If you, with, if you have more attention to shadow and you go out for the rest of your day, you'll find numerous examples. It can be a little bit overwhelming sometimes. <laughs> oh my gosh, shadow there, shadow there, shadow there. <laughs> shadow everywhere, oh. Even though it's brightly sunny in Marin County. A lot of shadows. <laughs> so... Um, so we have to have a certain amount of patience and equanimity and balance. The community is very helpful, and especially to see that we all kind of have the same stuff, more or less. Sometimes more, sometimes less, but community is very helpful. And I'm, I'll try to finish in time to hear some of our stories, because it's very helpful just to hear what we've been exploring. So I invited us to look for these places where there might be some reactivity, because that starts to be a cue, or where we, we react, oh, Someone's complimenting me. Better say, oh, oh, not really, not really, <laughs> you know? Or I shy back, or I am very reactive at someone else's particular emotion or way of behavior. Again, it doesn't at all mean that there might not be very appropriate commentary on someone else's behavior. This, this is complementary to the other person taking responsibility for himself or herself. And I don't want to at all deny that horror for a society to take responsibility. But we can, in part, take responsibility for ourselves and our reactions. So the invitation last time was to look, where is there a strong self-image that tends to maybe exclude certain parts of ourselves? Are there certain parts of ourselves that we feel uncomfortable with? And in a little while, I'll, I'll talk about the shadow of spirituality more in a more focused way and connect that maybe with our practice. So are there certain places where we feel uncomfortable? Are there places where we're reactive? Do we tend to react towards uh, certain people? People who fit this or that um, criterion. That would be shadow phenomena. Um, What is the shadow of spirituality? Is there a shadow of spirituality, or, is, or do the shadows leave when we begin spiritual practice? <laughs> What's your answer? Shadows. There's a shadow. How many people think there's a shadow? Okay. okay. We'll take that as a, the guiding wisdom of the group at this point. <laughs> so... You know, what's the, what's the more obvious shadow of spirituality? I want to talk more generally that we find in spirituality and religion. Some of it's more obvious, and newspapers love to cover the shadow. They don't use that language, but they love to cover shadow phenomena of religion and spirituality. So the more obvious ones would be around issues, what, of sex, power, and money, basically. <laughs> Sometimes drugs. You know, uh, but around, around those issues, and a lot of it is, is quite um, tragic, you know. I mean, we have the example, or we might say the abuse of power as well. And so we have the example of the um, priests in the Catholic Church, you know, this very large-scale abuse of power over, you know, probably hundreds of years, but certainly been chronicled in over like coming to uh, awareness last 30 or 40 years, maybe because the, in that tradition, sexuality enters into part of the shadow. Or power issues become part of the shadow. And many uh, scholars of Christianity, for example, have said that once the Christian church entered into an arrangement with... Um, I guess the Emperor Constantine in the year 312, long time ago, once that occurred and there was this movement from a more 
marginal group of people trying to live purely to something that shared power, power issues have entered into the shadow of Christianity. Been there for a long time. So, and that would make sense of why there are continual renewal movements which say, no, the church has become too corrupt, become too inured with the power, or it's been complicit with oppression. You know, the movements of liberation theology in Latin America have started from that perspective. The Catholic Church in Latin America, very comfy with oppressive power. That would be part of the shadow, the power, the power issues, sexuality, um, For people like uh, Martin Luther King dealt with this a lot. He said that the, it was the um, silence and inaction of Christian ministers or Jewish rabbis which was most painful to him in the 1960s. It was the silence of ordinary religious or spiritual people towards injustice which was for him uh, in, in a sense uh, more of a danger than outright racism. You know, uh, that the silence, it's some, many people have said this, the silence of good people is, in a sense, more of a threat than actually the evil actions of uh, certain, certain actors. <clears throat> so I think every um, actual spiritual practice or spiritual tradition will tend to have its shadow. I thought I'd read you a passage from uh, Jack Kornfield. Jack is a great person. He likes to really encourage us to look at our shadow in spiritual practice. And you know, there was one large teacher meeting where he invited everyone, talk about your shadow with everyone else present. <laughs> <laughs> so here's what he says. Uh, Just as every community has a shadow, every set of teachings will also have uh, will also have areas of shadow, aspects of life that they do, do not illuminate wisely or that doesn't find a comfortable place. He says, insight meditation and similar Buddhist practices can lead to quietude, to withdrawal from and fear of the world. The emptiness taught in Zen and non-dualist Vedanta can lead to a related problem, to being disconnected and ungrounded. Any form of idealistic otherworldly teaching that sees life on earth as a dream or focuses on higher realms can lead one to live with complacency, amorality, and indifference. Physical practice such as hatha yoga can lead to bodily perfection instead of awakening of the heart. Kundalini yoga can, can lead students to become experienced junkies in search of exciting sensations of body and mind rather than liberation. Those such as Krishnamurti and others who teach against any discipline or method of practice can lead people to remain intellectual about spiritual life without providing any deep inner experiences. Practices that involve a great deal of study can do the same. Moralistic practices with strong rules about what is pure and what is not can reinforce low self-esteem or lead to rigidity and self-righteousness. Practices of Tantra can become an excuse to act out desires as a pseudo-form of spiritual practice. You see, it has a long list here. <laughs> Devotional practices can leave clarity and discriminating wisdom undeveloped. Powerful gurus can make us think we can't do it ourselves. Practices of joy and celebration, such as Sufi dancing, may leave students lacking in understanding of the inevitable loss and sorrows of life. Practices that emphasize suffering can miss the joy of life. So you see, there tend to be shadows. They're almost inevitable that, that uh, they will come up in spiritual practice. So I thought I would just end with naming a few areas which to me seem particularly uh, areas that tend to be shadows in mindfulness practice uh, and that tend partly because these practices, and this, these may be not be so much issues for you, you'll have to see whether these come up, but I think they tend to be in the larger culture uh, that we're part of, partly because this comes out of a monastic tradition, you know, a monastic tradition, and I think we're in the process of seeing 
how do these teachings and practices get uh, articulated in a way which both makes sense for who we are in our lives in this culture and doesn't lose the depth of the tradition. That's a big, that's huge, but it's happened in every tradition, for example, where Buddhism has moved from India to China or Tibet or uh, to a lesser extent Southeast Asia. But I thought of four areas that are sometimes issues in insight meditation communities and for insight meditation practitioners. And I will acknowledge that they have been issues for me. (laughs) So uh, the four are anger, desire, conflict, and a tendency to have a more kind of private uh, way of being spiritual that kind of disconnects us somewhat from the world. I want to talk about those four and then we can open up to to discussion. Um, Anger is, is, can be part of the shadow. We may interpret meditation as suggesting a self-image in which we are calm, peaceful, and friendly. Sounds good, right? (laughs) I think that's true. And what it means is that when we have certain more difficult emotions, we may not find them welcome. Now, this may not be a problem for you, for you, uh, but I think it's generally been uh, an issue that's come up at least for a significant group of people in this tradition, partly because um, in the tradition itself, anger is seen as a problem. It's essentially seen as a sign of ignorance or delusion. If we're really caught up and angry about something. Personally, having uh, looked at that a lot, I think that there's serious issues, for example, about uh, translation. The words translated as anger from Asian traditions are much closer in connotation to our word hatred. In the English language and other Western languages, anger tends to be seen as sometimes destructive and sometimes connected with um, identifying where a boundary has been violated related perhaps to ethics or to justice. People get angry sometimes when one's been treated unfairly. One doesn't have that same connotation in the Asian languages. And so I could unpack this with a whole talk on anger sometime if if you'd like. It's ready. (laughs) But so so it's actually quite complicated. But the message people tend to get and that I see sometimes manifest both individually and in Buddhist communities is that people tend to think when anger comes up, my gosh, this is not really, doesn't fit my ideal of who I am as a spiritual person, particularly as a Buddhist practitioner, because aren't there all these texts? Shanti Deva, the way of the Bodhisattva says, one act of anger will cause damage for uh, countless eons. It says that right there in the text. Look it up, chapter 6 on patience. (laughs) It's right there. Uh, And I think there are major translation issues. The Dalai Lama has looked into this issue and says, you should not translate any of those words which uh, are really more linked with hatred. You should not translate them into English as anger because the connotations are too different. But that's not generally known, I believe. And so all sorts of reasons. It could be anger might be part of the personal shadow to start with in your family. And then you come to Buddhism and say, oh, my gosh, I don't have to deal with anger. Great. And I'm I'm an advanced spiritual person. Mm -hmm. You see, so the message of the tradition (coughs) can link with the personal shadow and um, make it difficult to open to. You know, even if we have practices where we just sit there and anger occurs. You know, we might even tend to suppress it there. But I think one of the beautiful things about practice is we have these tools which actually can cut through the shadow material, you know, and um, um, there are, I think, quite a number of teachers here at Spirit Rock and elsewhere who 
don't have that attitude in relation to anger. But it can be, can be an issue. I think it was definitely for me. A second uh, area is desire. Again, very, can be very much linked with the way we interpret the teachings. We have a monastic tradition, which is celibate, and we have uh, teachings which say that the source of suffering is craving. Wouldn't that tend to give you the message that if you have strong desires, there's some problem? You're getting attached to some experience. And so, in practice, desires can sometimes be part of the shadow in this tradition. Again, this may not be your experience, but probably for many of you it's there to some extent. You know, what about desires? I remember I was teaching uh, once a group that I I remember, um, I think I was co-teaching it with Julie Wester, and it was a group of intermediate level students, and we were um, doing like a six or eight week uh, group. I I think it was called uh, Walk Like a Bodhisattva. I think. And it was, I don't know if we meant anything by that. It was just, a, it was a, there was a song at that time of that name. We like the, the title. But um, I remember going in there and we asked people, what do you want to talk about? And these were all people who were, had done Buddhist practice for some time. And, they, and almost everyone said, I want to know how to be more in touch with my desires and act on them. And they all knew that there was something that was a little bit funny in relation because the, you know, one version of the usual Buddhist practice is that one wouldn't do that. And so desire can be part of the, uh, can be part of the shadow. And this, this would manifest, like, manifest in a community if people find themselves speaking too strongly on behalf of something they want, there can be that internal voice which says, aren't you following desire? Won't other people see you as non-spiritual or not so advanced? Same thing with anger. I think that comes up in people's minds when there is confusion about these things. So it becomes part of the shadow and works with that kind of internal censoring device that we all have to some extent. A third area is conflict. Conflict is the social manifestation of confusion about anger and desire, (laughs) we might say. You know that, uh, but I think it also is an area that quite concretely in Buddhist communities has sometimes been not something people could skillfully deal with because often people don't want to open to conflict. It's like, aren't we spiritual? We don't have conflicts. And that can become part of the shadow area. And I know that's been the case. And when conflicts have arisen in a number of spiritual Buddhist communities, they've often been quite unskillfully dealt with because there's partly some sense of we don't have conflicts and we don't know how to deal with them and uh, we don't in some way want to admit they're there. And so I think there's been a lot of learning in the last five or ten years about that. I know that, for example, the monastic community in England where Achan Sumedho teaches called Amaravati, they were actually having a lot of interpersonal conflicts with monks and nuns. And you might think of monasteries as a place where everyone lives in harmony. And they are. There are no conflicts. Not not true. They're just like everyone else, really. They may have been meditating for a while, but conflicts arise. And they found they didn't have ways of even openly seeing them, admitting them, and working with them. And they had everyone, they wanted, worked with a few things, but they had people train in nonviolent communication for example, as a way to have some methods to work with conflict. So conflict can be part of the shadow. People don't want to go there because it doesn't fit in some way the combination of the personal and the community self-image. Is this making some sense? And then the last one I want to mention, I'll close with this, part of the shadow of our practice can be the ways that we uh, interpret it uh, very privately in a way in which we don't really connect with the rest of the world. And I think that makes sense uh, often as a a transitional stage 
for part of our developmental pattern. You know, I know that was true for me, that when I first got interested in meditation, my focus was more inner. And I had been an activist before that, and a lot of my activist friends thought I was just becoming escapist and so forth. But I knew that it was a, it was a necessary stage, which lasted for several years, where I was primarily focusing in the inner way. So I think that's very valid. But there are ways in which uh, we can cultivate a individual peacefulness that is based to some extent on privilege and separation from the world's suffering. In other words, we can take our practice, I think this is part of the shadow, we can make our practice a form of middle-class escapism. And um, I've particularly heard this from people who I've talked to from from Asia, who are involved with some of the issues there. I I remember uh, talking with Sulak Sivaraksha, who's been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize from Thailand, and he talks a lot about the dangers of Buddhism in the West becoming a way for middle-class people to find some personal peace while the society is going through hard times. And to some extent, that, that's valid, but to the extent we can, the sh- it would be shadow material when we use it to shut off certain things, to shut out, shut out the world. Um, one person who's written eloquently about this, and somewhat unexpectedly, is the great uh, scholar Bhikkhu Bodhi, who's an American, whose translations of the discourses of the Buddha are among the best, they're the best translations we have now, and they're ones you'll find in the bookstore published by Wisdom Publications. So he's led the life of a monk for the last, what, 30 or 40 years. He's tended to be quite conservative. He came out two years ago with this statement. Huh? Yeah, Uh, then this is is on the web. Uh, It was published in Buddha Dharma. A short essay, two-page essay. He says, it seems to me that we Western Buddhists tend to dwell in a cognitive space that defines the first noble truth largely against the background of our middle-class lifestyles. As the gnawing of discontent, the ennui of oversatiation, the pain of unfulfilling relationships, with a whore with a bow to Buddhist theory as bondage to the round of rebirths. Too often, I feel, our focus on these aspects of dukkha has made us oblivious to the vast catastrophic suffering that, that daily overwhelms three-fourths of the world's population. That then, so that becomes part of the collective shadow that we share in this country to some extent. Right? So we can use our practice in that way. And so what do we, what do, we do? We try to find ways to bring all of this to awareness. We try to do so through individual practices where we open to the shadow. We look for it. We look for it in the places where there's reactivity. We watch our language. We can open to shadow through a variety of psychological uh, methods, using dreams, using art and drawing, Um, going into silence and just seeing what arises. Meditation's a powerful way to work with the shadow. We can do it through uh, community and collective processes. At Spirit Rock, one of the most healthy things that we do is we teach in teams. And everyone in the Teacher's Council more or less knows the shadows of the other people in the Teacher's Council. And it's very healthy. One of the great dangers of teachers is that they get isolated and inflated and separated from feedback. We get a lot of feedback on the Teacher's Council, and most of our retreatants are not shy either. Uh, <laughs> and so having processes of honest feedback, very, very crucial to the collective shadow, to a community shadow. So there are a lot of ways that we can work with this. I think we're, in a sense, probably personally and collectively, we're near the beginning of this process of working with the shadow. I think what's exciting for me is that it can get integrated with our practice, where there are these powerful, beautiful tools so um, I offer these perspectives as a way, again, in the spirit of unpacking some of the areas of ignorance. The shadow, the work on the shadow is skillful 
because it invites us to look in certain areas that we might not look otherwise, that might not even come up when we meditate. But we're asked, look in these areas. Look where you're reactive. Look where there's a self-image. Look at your community. Are certain things suppressed? Is there an elephant in the room? And then to work skillfully with it. It's, um, it opens up practice to be very creative, exciting, and challenging. So I'll stop there, and we'll just take, uh, take about 30 seconds just to sit, then we can have a little discussion. Thank you so much for your attention. I can really feel, I can feel that attention very, very much there. And I, I trust that you are, I mean, the subject matter is a lot. It can feel like a, a lot, right? But it's, it's, um, it opens up very important territory. Yeah. So questions, reflections, please. Yeah. So the question is how we identify what we might call the positive shadow or the bright shadow. Um, A lot, of the, a lot of the shadow material is subtle, and so we ha- it doesn't always come with uh, headlines. So the example I gave earlier was a very simple one. What happens when someone gives you a compliment? So it's to look at those kind of interactions. Notice if there are ways in which you, um, often in interaction, feel uncomfortable maybe with attention. A lot of us don't feel comfortable with attention. You know, the light shines on us, so to speak, and we don't want to be there. Um, There may be self-images connected with that 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 we can look at over time. The self-images may be that uh, I'm not so good or I don't belong uh, getting that attention. Uh, So we can look what happens when attention comes on us. Do I feel shy? Do I feel, do I move away from that? Um, We can look at how we, I mean, I'm thinking of another piece, um, how we actually get part of us is um, scared of the unknown. Sometimes the beautiful parts of ourselves are unknown, and we actually prefer known suffering to unknown possibilities. And <laughs> we prefer to stay in old patterns that bring suffering often. And so maybe looking at places where, there, where the unknown manifests might be a good place to look also. Maybe when there's openness. Maybe you have some open time. Um, anyone else want to add to that? I, I, I feel that was a start, but you might, others might have some con- contributions to that question. Anyone else? I thought you said something before in yeah. connection with a positive shadow um, that you find yourself projecting something very positive on somebody yeah. else. Yeah. That, that's right. So maybe in terms of um, working with the shadow, um, broadly speaking, I think there are um, a few ways to work with it. And one of the ways might also be just to study where you tend to project good qualities on others. So that would be another place. And to become familiar with the projective mechanism. Uh, the phrase is sometimes used, we learn to take back our projections. So be on the lookout for where there's projection on another person. And again, it doesn't mean that there are not some valid aspects. 
when do I, and again, we do this with family, with friends, with partners. It's inevitable. So we, it's not like we're trying to say, I will in the next week banish all projection. <laughs> if we tried to do that, we'd probably be creating new and exciting ways of projecting. <laughs> so we can, and we can take back projection. Robert Bly, who I quoted last time, He's, he uses the phrase, we eat, our we eat our projections, or we eat our shadow. We actually, and it becomes nourishing. You know, we, we look for where it's there. We look for where we're projecting on others. Yeah. Yeah. Not easy. And I think uh, just consciousness of language can be very helpful. Just look at how we talk about certain people. What, what's my, what are the words I use? Yeah. We should have a shadow group that meets in the evening. <laughs> or t- twilight, right? <laughs> okay. Other reflections or questions? Please, uh, was it Susan? Yeah. 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 So it's a great question. It really is like what does, um, what work has to be done? It can be specific with that kind of uh, situation. What kind of work to explore the shadow, work with projections does one do? A large part of it would be to, again, would be to identify the nature of the projections, which she did amazingly in doing this writing. You know, this writing is an act of shadow work. To actually identify them, I think it reflects years of work, actually. You know, it's not something which she just did as a... She was actually in graduate school when she did that. She did this for a project. Um, So it would be to actually identify and study how I internalize those messages. Some of it would be to... could be done... Uh, reflectively. Some of it could be done probably through help with uh, a counselor or could be done in a group of peers. A lot of, a lot of that kind of shadow material comes very, is very uh, nourished when one is with people with similar conditioning and people tell their stories to each other, right? That could be a big, big uh, support, you know, like what the consciousness raising groups that women experienced, I guess, in what, in the 70s and 80s and so forth, where stories were told that hadn't been told before about how have I internalized those images of myself, you know, as a woman? How have I internalized images of what? Of beauty or of uh, my role? So to talk about, to talk about it with others, to uh, identify them how, how they work in one's experience. And then I think uh, it would be to uh, get to know very, very well how they work in oneself to the point where one could see it as a tendency that's starting and could using, and this is where mindfulness comes in wonderfully, much like we would do with any uh, pattern that we notice in ourselves. Let's say, I notice a pattern when someone talks in a certain way to me to be reactive, you know, and to start getting angry with the person. Well, in mindfulness we study that and we develop, as it were, a way to study the pattern, know what's happening enough so we can know it in the moment of experience and go somewhere else. You know, and it, you know, a lot of stories that I've told <clears throat> about my own practice of working in those ways 
with these old conditioned patterns that would, you know, tend to have one be reactive. Well, it's pretty similar. You study the patterns, you see them clearly enough, and you develop alternative ways of dealing with it. So if Courtney in the past would be with someone who would uh, deliver a comment that basically was saying, you poor thing, and she would internalize that and maybe just sort of feel bad. She would study that enough to what be able to slow down the process in herself and notice it right at the beginning and say, oops, there's that happening. I'm not going to go there. And she might, you know, what, how she acts depend, you know, depends on her choice and situation. She might say, um, uh, she might feel in herself that pattern starting. She might say, um, if she was being confrontational, she might say, I sense that you're uncomfortable with disabled people. Right? <laughs> or, you know, she might or might not say that, depending on her mood. <laughs> right? Or she might, um, she might just keep it more personal, but not let that, uh, not let that comment influence her so much. You know? So there are a lot of things, as it gets more mature, I think we tend to see that it becomes more, the conditioning becomes more transparent. We see it. We're much, I think all of us probably know something like that from some pattern that we've worked through, right? I don't think the dynamic is any different than that. Like when we, when we spent some weeks here working with difficult emotions or kind of typical patterns, I think all of us probably have done that. This is exactly the same process. We bring awareness to it. We see it really clearly. We develop compassion. You know, a process involving deep conditioning, that can take a while. You know, I, I sense that Courtney's work, that sh- the writing I read was the fruit of quite a few years of looking at that. And it's slow, you know. And we might notice at one time and not notice another and just get caught by it. And that's, that's okay. This is a very, this is a long process. You know, as we were saying earlier, pack a sack lunch. <laughs> so, so ready to continue over next week? So you have a sense of what to look for? Maybe, maybe just look for one or two things. Don't, I've mentioned a lot of different tools. Just choose one or two of them. You, know, you might choose to look for self-image and just try to study it. Or look for where you get reactive. Or look for your tendency to project on others. But don't, I, I would say for most of us, probably not to try all of them. It's a little too much. Just take one or two and say, I want to focus there. Uh, and um, mostly be open to the shadow. I suggest doing something like remembering the focus at the beginning of the day. Take five minutes and say, I vow to explore shadow phenomena today. <laughs> Or your version of that. <laughs> but to, uh, and, and take, uh, and just choose one or two. And I think that it can be something that you just look at and you notice. And we can compare notes. And I'll bring in a little bit more of the collective shadow next time. And as well as uh, uh, see what we've explored. So let's just sit quietly for a minute or so to finish. Letting what's been helpful from the morning be present along with our intention for the next week. And in closing, we invoke the very traditional practice that is called dedication of merit. 
which is really to remember that we explore in this way, we open up to this very challenging territory at our own pace, both for ourselves and for others, that when we explore this territory, as John Tarrant, a Zen teacher and psychologist says, the courage with which we bear our own shadow prevents others from needing to carry it for us. That we're doing this for others as well and we offer the fruit, the value of the morning out beyond the boundaries of Spirit Rock, out into the world for the benefit and healing and freedom of all beings. Thanks so much for your attention. Again, I can really feel that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.